One note with the VBJI 5K, if you go to register now, whenever, there are teams, and we have a City Life team that's already organized. So you don't have to do it as an individual. We got teams. It's going to be Newport News crew. You'll recognize a couple names. I'm already in there. Uh, Lindsey Hoy, already in there, registered to run. So there is a, a City Life team. So when you go to register, you, got, you can go into the teams. It's easy. I did it in just a couple seconds. Um, and maybe, again, you're not a runner. There's ways to volunteer. Maybe like, I'm not running 5K, you crazy? Then there's ways to volunteer, but we're going to do it together. Bar, you a runner? Shut up. Man, you about to do Shamrock. <laughs> Sorry. One of the things I love about it here at City Life, though, is I can tell Bart to shut up from the pulpit because we're family, right? And, and Kenny can tell Anthony that he's 20 years aged out of CYP. Although I would say we're more like a decade aged out. It's not 20, man. <laughs> it's like, Kenny just took it a little too far. But... Honestly, though, truthfully, one of the ways that I love that we're a family and, 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 like, after the sharing service that we do every year in January, just people talking, like, I love that we're a tribe, we're a family, we have each other's backs, we have those sharing services so we can be praying for one another, lifting each other up. But what we're doing, uh, we want to do is take what's been organic, right? We, we pray for each other, we lift each other up, we celebrate victories, we rally around each other in defeats, but we wanna take what's been organic and make it a little organized, make it intentional. And so Mike Masters right here with the glorious hair, he is spearheading just a prayer chain ministry, right? So we can be organized, there's gonna be emails that go out. And uh, so two steps, say, say you need prayer, right? You, you need people to rally around you in prayer. We've got SFK, prayer at citylifeva.com that you can email or we got this nice little pretty need prayer box out there you can just fill out a prayer card put it in there it can be marked private like I only want it with the prayer team or it can be public so let everybody know pray over it in service whatever it may be and then phase two if you want to be a part of that like most of you already are praying for everybody every need you know if you want to be a part of that you can email that same email sfk prayer at citylifeva.com. You can see Mike Masters. You can see myself. And we're just, we believe that as it says in James, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And that when we come into agreement in unity in prayer, powerful things, miraculous things can happen. So we want to walk that out together. So that's just a practical note before I get preaching tonight. Um, again, Mike Masters right here, myself, that prayer box, SFK prayer at citylifeva.com. Got it? Good. You're taking notes tonight. In light of the news, the health scare of, of recent weeks, uh, we're going to look at James 48, and the sermon title is Wash Your Hands, You Sinners. No, just kidding. <laughs> kidding. If you've been here, you know that we're actually in a series called Seven. It's seven letters to seven churches in seven cities at the outset of the book of Revelation. And they're spoken to John, and he puts them down so they can be taken to them by messenger and, and spoken to them. And they experience what it's like for somebody to say, you've got mail from Jesus. Like imagine a mailman walks through those doors and says, hey, time out. Stop service. I got a letter. It's postmarked from Jesus, and I'm going to read it. Like would you even believe him? Would you run him out? Would you be like, is, he gonna talk about, is the letter going to talk about us? Is it going to talk about me? What, what would you do in that moment? Think about it. And you know, Dean Nowatney, another member of our family, right, preached in December. And in that, he made note that so often I reference stuff from, the, you know, my generation. I don't reach far back enough into the seasoned, seasoned culture and pop culture content. And I know as well, I pull from action movies, epics, Marvel movies, because look at me, right? But tonight, I just wanted to uh, take maybe a, a trip down chick flick memory lane. 
Because the tagline for this series is, you've got mail from Jesus. How many of you actually remember the movie, You've Got Mail, from decades ago? Young Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in that movie. And my fun fact, Dave Chappelle was in there, right? One of my favorite actors. Just kidding. <laughs> but the plot, maybe you don't remember the plot. So the plot of You've Got Mail is that a struggling boutique bookseller played by Meg Ryan, she hates the owner of a corporate Fox Books chain store that just moved in across the street, played by the Tom Hanks. But when they meet online, they begin an anonymous internet romance, oblivious of each other's true identity. So people from different backgrounds that actually hate each other's backgrounds fall in love without even knowing it online over a love for books. Can anyone relate? Maybe not to that love story. That'd be wild. But it's just a love for books. All right, thank you, thank you. I got, a, I got a, a, a slight obsession. Steph wishes I would love him a little less, maybe get rid of a couple, right? <laughs> Our office is overflowing. But if, if, if that's you, you would have loved the city we're looking at tonight, which is Pergamum. Because in that city was the second largest library in the entire world at that time. Second only to the library that was in Egypt. There were 200,000 documents, books, and, and just pieces of work there in that library in Pergamum. 200,000. Well, I guess you would have loved it minus the whole persecution, martyrdom, and violence against the church. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's get to the letter to the church in Pergamum. It's in Revelation 2 where we've been for weeks now. And this one starts in verse 12. And again, Jesus is speaking to John as he's appeared to him on this island of Patmos. And he tells him, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that even in this passage we see that, that you are infinite and yet you're intimate. God, you, you give us a stone with a new name. That There's something intimate about that, Lord God. And God, I pray that in light of that, your Holy Spirit would be here. Take this word, that dense, mysterious word to this church in Pergamum and, and use it to impact each one of our hearts and each one of our minds. The way we see you, the way we think you see us, God, let it line up with Scripture and your truth tonight. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. So as we've been talking about in this series, each letter shares in very common elements. So this letter, like all the letters do, gives us a unique depiction of Jesus. And the image of Jesus that we get in this letter is that he is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now this may ring a bell with some of us here. It wouldn't have been a new image to many of the believers in Pergamum. 
because it's seen elsewhere in Scripture. Even in Revelation, right? We open in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1.16, it says that in his right hand, Jesus' right hand, in this vision that John had, he held the seven stars, which we talked about, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. We see this imagery repeated later in Revelation 19. And if you've been through Sunday school, grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with Ephesians 6, where it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then tonight, I really want to look at Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12 is where it reads, For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And let me tell you, as your pastor, as somebody who preaches every week, this verse gives me comfort. Because I can be weak, I can be downright dull, but Scripture is sharp, living, and active and so my goal when I preach is not to overwhelm you with beautiful illustrations or alliteration after alliteration, although those are uh, useful, right, in teaching and bridging context. But my goal is to preach this word because it's living and active, because the Holy Spirit can use it to do work in our hearts every time it's preached and spoken. That's my goal. You know, how many of you guys remember Brian Reakin and the Reakin family? They planted with us. They were here for a year or two. Anthony's raising his hand. Because there was a, a, a morning I met at Starbucks with Anthony. You should do that. Great guy, elder at the church. Wave, Anthony. We love him. And, and Brian Reakin was there. And so I don't even remember what we were meeting about. It might have just been to, to hang out. And Brian Reakin's like, hey, man, last week you were preaching out of Mark 3. And the Holy Spirit really spoke to me. All right, so I'm getting ready to pat myself on the back. I'm like, okay. God used me in a big way. Like, let's hear about this. Let's hear about this. And he's like, so I open my Bible, and you're preaching over here from Mark 3. But then I look over to Mark 1, and, like, I just started reading as you were preaching, and the Holy Spirit was speaking to me from Mark 1. So literally nothing I said had anything to do with what the Holy Spirit did in Brian's life that night. Right? That was a nice little humbling experience for me. And, uh, but it's this idea that, that, the word of God is living and active. What if, right, I preach on Mark 3 on Saturday, but then on Monday you open up scripture to Mark 2, Genesis 2, 1 Timothy 2, right? Hang with me here. Like, what if you open scripture every day and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you through his word? The word of God is living and active. Just this morning, first thing I did when I wake up, I turned off my alarm and there's a U version notification. I try to control what is, is speaking to me first thing, but there was the U version notification. And the verse was the verse I knew I was going to use for communion. Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It was the verse of the day. That was just like a beautiful confirmation that, hey, God's got my back today as we were getting ready for service. And I don't know how that app works, but in like the 10 minutes it took me to get my coffee, I come back to look at like my reading plan in there, and the verse of the day had already changed. And uh, I don't know if like it was yesterday's verse, I don't know. Maybe it was a miracle of God and he was speaking to me. Because the verse, the verse after that was Habakkuk. And it, was, it just spoke directly to something that had been discouraging me, and, and it was wild. Before I even opened up to, like, my reading plan, the Bible had already been speaking to me. It's living and it's active. And not every day is like that, right? There are days, again, I'm, I'm reading through Numbers. I'll probably reference that tonight. Like, the beginning of Numbers, it's not like you read it and you're ready to, like, just tackle the day. Not every morning is like, this was amazing. But sometimes, I believe, and one reason... I think it doesn't sometimes feel as living and active as it could is a reason I really hadn't considered much until recently. 
And that's because we read scripture, right? We've all got one of these. Whether it's on a, in a book or on our phone, we're reading text. And there's nothing wrong with that. But rarely anymore do we listen to scripture. And I, I've shared this quote from the theologian Scott Swain before when preaching on the Bible. And he says, because scripture is the supreme locus of God's self-communication in the world, Christians are by nature people of the book. And I preach that. And be like, yeah, we are people of the book. And yes, that's true of us of our era, but I think sometimes I forget, I know I forget that sometimes books were rare. Very few people could read, right? There weren't many Bibles just floating around. Scripture was rarely printed. And for countless generations, the, the, the reading of God's word was a community event and it involved listening. And I share this because Pergamum, again, had plenty of books, 200,000 books in their library, which was unheard of at that time. This is like a bookmark in history, the beginning of a new era of books, one we now live in. But why do I share this? What does this have to do with our relationship with God and his word? I would say a lot. Because listening to somebody speak and reading, they're not really that similar. Listening is an interpersonal act. While reading is often me, myself, and I, I'm going to go find a chair that's comfortable, that Raj can't find me in for at least five minutes, and get me a, a cup of coffee, and it's just going to be me, myself, and I reading over here. In another way, when listening, the speaker's in charge. I'm in charge right now. Sorry. In reading, the reader is in charge. When I read a book, I naturally look down on it. But when I'm spoken to or taught, I sit under and receive that teaching as I listen. Again, copies of scripture like this were rare centuries ago. To consume scripture, it was, again, often an act of listening. I, I own so many Bibles. I've got, like, my preaching Bibles, these, you know, like Dean would know. I like the ones where it, like, sits in your hand, just one hand. I got my, like, tiny Bibles that I can pack when I go to the DR. I got my giant Bible that's, like, 20 pounds. It's got commentaries and historical facts in it. That's the one I like to read with my coffee. I got so many Bibles and translations, I couldn't tell you how many I have without finding them all, right? And yet, that was so rare for so long. And you would think that the result of this surplus of printed scripture and copies of scripture would lead to cultivated minds and maturity and spiritual maturities abounding because we have so many copies of scripture, and yet what we find is we often have consuming minds. We're going to scripture becomes a quick transaction rather than living and active. We look for information in words rather than we look for relationship with the one who spoke those words into existence. And with this perspective, it can quickly begin to feel less than living and active. You know, I think sometimes we too often come to the, the word of God like it's the cadaver, right? Like we're cutting open and examining and investigating and evaluating. And if we come at the Bible like it's a dead body, it's going to feel dead. But you read Hebrews 4, you're the cadaver. <laughs> you are the dead body that the Bible investigates and evaluates. You know, I've heard it said of Scripture being living and active that it has feet to run after you and hands that lay hold of you. And yet most of the church fails to lay hold of the Bible. We want God to lay hold of us, yet we, how often are we laying hold of this here? All right, again, when reading a book, the reader is in charge, and yet we rarely take charge and pick up our Bibles and read them. And the danger that happens, the crisis that happens, why I'm preaching on this is gradually we mistake our indifference for his silence or our numbness 
for his absence. And I'm not overstating this. Like, we've been over the stats to the point where some of you are probably sick of it. Like, stop quoting these surveys about Scripture. But LifeWay did a survey of thousands of churchgoers a couple years ago where, where 90% of those surveyed said that they want to honor God in all they do. 90, 90%. They want to honor God in everything they do. But only 19%, 1-9% actually open their Bible regularly. All right, so all these people want to honor God and his commands, but they're not even reading them or familiar you know, that lines up with the other survey I've quoted to death where it's, it's 80% of the people that go to church don't open their Bible outside of church, which means for the most part they're not opening their Bible unless their pastor is telling them to from a pulpit. It's just another book on a shelf among other books. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with a lot of books. Amen? <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a lot of books. You know, I'm a recovering English major. I wrote part of this sermon in the library surrounded by books and more books. I would have loved it in Pergamum, again, the library portion. Pergamum, again, held 200,000 books. And these books quickly made Pergamum a center of learning. Pergamum wasn't like in a trade route, wasn't a port city, so it wasn't really commerce, but it was a place of culture. It was a place of knowledge and learning. And yet in God's reproach of Pergamum, this place of learning, we see that knowledge, consuming knowledge doesn't necessarily make you wise. Like, think about it. Like, we say practice makes perfect. No, it doesn't. You practice the wrong thing, you can be jacked up. <laughs> Practicing the right thing makes you perfect. Consuming just every idea isn't going to make you wise if it's counter to the Scripture and God's truth. Right? In the same way. So they consume plenty of books. They consume plenty of knowledge. But it didn't cultivate wisdom. So this place... Where, where learning was at its peak, there was also pluralism. There was also paganism. And it, even false doctrine had taken root in the church. It's no coincidence then in this letter that the doctrine of Balaam is referenced. He's in Numbers. So I just read about him the other day. For one, Balaam derailed the Israelites in Numbers the same way that pagan worship derailed them here with sexual immorality. But one other thing you see in a deeper level is Balaam is this seer, this pagan uh, seer uh, who, who spoke God's word, prophesied, right? His words that he prophesied are in God's word, scripture. Right? This man was used by God. This enemy king was trying to get him to curse the Israelites. He couldn't. He just kept speaking blessings over them again and again. And you would think, this was also the same guy, talking about Sunday school, like whose donkey talked to him. Like that happens to me, it's going to get my attention, right? That happens, he's prophesying, God's speaking to him, and yet he doesn't become a follower of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, God just becomes another book on the shelf. God gets like a room in his house. He doesn't get rain over the house. He's compartmentalized. We see it throughout Scripture, other people doing the same thing. And how many of us do the same, with or without realizing it? God gets a place, but it's among other objects among other things that we worship. And as a result, the enemy can get a foothold. The enemy got a foothold here in Pergamum, more than just a foothold. According to this letter, it was basically his headquarters. Jesus calls it Satan's city. You know, amidst the prominent gods in Pergamum, again, there was 50 plus. There was one, Asclepius. Don't know if I'm saying that right. But it was the god of healing at the heart of a prominent cult. It was alternative medicine. We're talking about occult practices, and the chief symbol of their movement was a snake. And higher up on the hill, because this, this city was on a hill, at the top of the hill was the temple of Zeus. 
And within this temple, there were all these different snakes. So surrounding the church in Pergamum, there was books and culture over here. And then over here, there's a lot of snake imagery. And those two can be tied together and will do just that. But, you know, Satan is revealed as a snake in Genesis. Satan shows up as a snake in Revelation, and he's plenty active in between. And as a snake, it means he has a, in this metaphor, imagery at least, it means he has a, a, a split, forked tongue. And fittingly, his words throughout Scripture are split between truth and lies. Jesus is identified in this letter to Pergamum as the one with the sharp two-edged sword, or other translations say double-edged sword. What our enemy likes to do, what Satan likes to do, is take one edge of the sword. Feet is a half-truth that can sometimes be a distortion. The more you look at Scripture, the more you realize that half-truths are like the enemy's native tongue. He uses them like Trojan horses. They sound right because they're, they're pulled from what God has said. Maybe we're not even getting them from a snake. Maybe you're getting them from somebody you, you respect. Like you look at Genesis 3, we see a serpent and half-truths. God had told Adam in Genesis, right, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So often our culture tries to paint God as a killjoy, and yet what are his first words? You are free, except for one boundary. Like, just don't eat from that one tree over there. But when the enemy comes in, he quotes him like he's a killjoy. He says, has God said you shall not eat of every tree? All of a sudden it went from one to every. And the conversation could have gone, no, and could have ended there. But uh, Eve gets careless with the words of God, whether it's due to miscommunication from Adam or, or, or what. But she says, you must not touch it or you will die. So all of a sudden, don't eat, God's actual command has become don't touch. So God's words just keep getting twisted and distorted until it derailed Adam, Eve, and humanity. All right, so how often, we talked about this in myth busting a year ago, right, in that long sermon series, how often... Are, are, are half-truths hurting us? Misconceptions we have about God's word causing missteps in our lives. In Matthew 4, Satan comes in much the same way. One of the few other places in Scripture where we have his words, and he comes to Jesus, and he directly quotes Scripture, word for word to Jesus. Like, he's not twisting it at this point. He's, he's quoting Scripture. And what Jesus does is finishes the Scriptures. He says, okay, here's the context. Here's what, here's what this means. And we see that we're not supposed to be wary of Scripture, but Scripture interprets Scripture. And half-truths hurt. We have to know the full truth or like Pergamon, we can fall into false ideas or false doctrine. Jesus' correction, is, again, there's a correction in every letter to these churches in Revelation. His correction to the church in Pergamon is that they'd allowed these false doctrines and half-truths to go unaddressed. It's made its way into the body of Christ at this point and taken root. You know, when Paul wrote the church in Corinth, his fear was that they might go the way of, of churches like Pergamum. And he writes in 2 Corinthians eleven three. He says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Why? Because you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. So bridging context, what does this look like in our context? What does this look like? in our culture for me and you, well, we've talked about this before. How we, we, we so often with our technology, with, with sound bites, we can become copy and paste Christians. Like we march to the beat of our own drum and a set of beliefs that we've kind of picked up here and picked up there from quotations or blogs or sermon clips, none of which are bad in and of themselves. 
But we can parrot our faith in bits and pieces with pieces we picked up here, picked up over there. See, verses without context can't be our daily bread. You know, like, uh, we got all these food groups. It's like only focusing on one because what so often happens is we'll get the feels and the warm fuzzies and little else. We'll get reassurance but no rebuke. We'll get confirmation without correction, comfort without Hebrews 4 cutting to the heart of the matter. And this isn't to, again, this simple simple one-liners, alliteration. I use this kind of stuff. It helps people remember what's being taught. You look at Proverbs. It's a bunch of couplets. So I'm certainly not dissing short ideas, but my point is this. Far too many people read Bible verses, but don't read their Bible. Less than 30% of all, less than 30% of all Christians will read the Bible from cover to cover in their lifetime. Less than 30% of all Christians will lead, read all of Scripture. You know, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. All scripture is useful for, as it says in the NIV, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Again, bits and pieces, a verse here and there will often give us comfort without the correcting we find in this verse. Or telling us where we're playing wrong. It just says right there. And the result is we end up less than thoroughly prepared and equipped. What's the goal of this equipping? Ephesians 4.12 says that we're here tonight so we can be equipped for ministry. What's the ministry? We've talked about this before. This is not the front lines of ministry. This isn't ministry. This is where we come to be equipped for ministry. Ministry is what happen- is happening back in your neighborhood at your workplace, wherever we go out from here to be a light in a dark place and share the hope we have, that's ministry. This is being equipped for ministry. Sure, is ministry done here? Yes, but we're also being equipped for what happens out there. And the church in Pergamum wasn't called to ministry within its four walls any more than we were. They were called to be a light and minister in a very dark culture. And we're called to take God's grace and truth to our Pergamum. And at times it may feel like the capital of Satan, but greater is he that is in us than whatever is out there in the world. And we see this walked out powerful ways in scripture. You look at Daniel serving in the the government of Babylon for decades. Joseph serving under Pharaoh in Egypt for years. These people were a light. See Jeremiah, his advice to seek the good of the land where they were exiled. Or even just these churches in Revelation, suffering persecution amidst pagan cultures, but still called to be a light. But Pergamum, Pergamum was slipping in this regard. And the problem is evident and it's illustrated. It's interesting. I couldn't find an image of it, but apparently there's a double-sided coin that was used in Pergamum later on during Constantine's era of the Roman Empire after this letter was penned. And it now resides in the British Museum. Y'all can travel there, you'll see it. If not tough, sorry, I couldn't find a picture. But one side has Christian emblems. The other side is full of pagan emblems. Because when we're not fully dedicated to the full truth of God's word, the double-edged sword will let one-sided half-truths take root. And what ends up is we don't transform anything we conform. You know, the way we so often in our culture, especially if you have a heart for reaching, like you want to go reach your coworkers, you want to reach the people God's put on your heart, we cling tight to grace, but so often we, we get a loose hold on truth. But grace and truth, they aren't opposites. 
They're two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same double-edged sword. Jesus, it says in John 1.17, came in grace and truth. And we're called to do the same, grace in one hand, truth in the other. Right, we're not called to let go of one or the other. And I don't think we loosen our grip on truth because we don't know it. Sometimes we don't like it because it cuts. It hurts. We don't like that part of, of 2 Timothy verse 3 where it says it makes us realize what is wrong with our lives. I don't like it when people walk up to me and tell me what's wrong with my life. Like, do I want that from God's word? I don't know. Don't confront me. Affirm me. I mean, think about this. Like, I see it again and again. It Maybe not expressed like this, but where the unconditional love of God becomes unconditional affirmation of whatever makes me happy. Parent a child for 10 minutes. I love Raj. I couldn't love Raj more. I'm up here every other week talking about Raj crying, and y'all are probably like, cut it out, man. Because I love Raj. Like, I couldn't love a human being more. He has my unconditional love. Does he have my unconditional affirmation? Have you seen him? No. I couldn't love him more. But I correct him all the time. And any loving parent is going to tell their child what's wrong and what's right. They're going to teach us loving discipline. But so often we, I like to think I'm a good father, right? But we project this unconditional affirmation. Well, God loves me. My heavenly father loves me unconditionally. He affirms what makes me happy. We like the version of Christianity that does away with the very first two words of Jesus' invitation. Deny yourself, right? And affirms what I'm already inclined to do. We want scripture to be like a sponge, and you wash your car with, and maybe the Q-tip you deal, detail the inside with, or a roller when you're running miles on miles like Bart, where you just kind of roll it and work the kinks out of your muscles, right? But it's a double-edged sword that cuts. You know, in a recent survey, six out of 10 Americans agreed that religious belief, it's a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. You know, real kicker, one out of three people in the church said the same. I got a buddy, an old friend who's a part of the church still, and he said recently that, that any claim to absolute truth makes an idol out of the Bible. Right? The, the truth is something we all can have. It doesn't have to always line up. Absolute truth, it's a thing of the past. Because we become a people that look down on Scripture and analyze it. Because we read it rather than sitting under its teaching and submitting to it. You know, this posture of we've adopted of looking down on Scripture is why it's probably so trendy these days in our Christian subculture, the deconversion story or deconstructing your faith. And the starting block of these stories is an awakening that involves questioning what you've long believed or come to believe in the church. And with this, this, this revelation comes this assertion that we can't be sure of anything. It's not the way religion works. And what's implied is that anybody that has a deep conviction about the truth of our beliefs needs to repent. Humble yourself and begin questioning your interpretation of the Bible. And, and there's some truth here. If, you're, if your faith is full of half-truths and misconceptions, right, you should be doing some deconstruction. But this whole idea can go off the, the rails. Because if we're called to be uncertain of everything, we can't be certain of doctrines, including the divinity of Jesus, resurrection from the dead, the forgiveness of our sins. Like we said last week, Paul says in Corinth, if the resurrection didn't happen, what are we doing here? Right? Your faith is useless if those things aren't true. But most aren't willing to assert the rejection of these basic truths, but it just reveals this selective commitment to deconstructing and questioning. Really, it's, it's finding a way to approve of the new belief, ultimately my own truth. And what happens is 
We no longer exist to seek and serve God, but God exists to give permission to do whatever we want. Right? We no longer sit under scripture dividing our soul. We stand over it in critique. We take this, leave that. Is there deconstruction to be done? Yeah, that was at the heart of the Reformation. Right? That was at the heart of different movements in the church. But at the same time, we're called in scripture to rightly divide what? The word of truth. Not my truth or your truth. God's truth. This is a truth that we stand under and obey. And I think what's sometimes missed is there's a difference between incomplete knowledge and zero knowledge. Not knowing anything. Sure, some of scripture, you keep reading Revelation to the end. There's some stuff we're not going to know this out of heaven. But you read this Bible from cover to cover, there is plenty of black and white, blatantly obvious truths that we're supposed to obey and submit to this side of heaven. We don't stand over them to critique them. We stand under them to obey and submit to them. God's truth is the foundation that we build on, we construct on, and God's word is this authoritative blueprint we submit to. Or like Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, your house is probably going to crumble in the sand. It's given to us as a blueprint. It's given to us as steps forward. But what's ironic, again, you look at Hebrews 4, which contains the verse we opened with. It's probably one of the more famous passages in Scripture about rest. Hebrews 4 is about rest and peace and peace and more rest. And then all of a sudden you get to this verse where we get this image of God's word that it's a sword that strips us, cuts us, leaves us open on a surgeon's table. And I'm like, where did the theme of rest go? But again, too often we come to the Bible, like the Bible's the dead body. It's the cadaver that we inspect, we cut open, we investigate, we, we evaluate. But Hebrews says, you're the, you're the body. Right? The Bible does the work of inspection and evaluation. And really, this is the gospel. Oh, there's good news, right? Jesus saves. Grace and mercy covers. Guilt and shame can kick rocks. But there's bad news. You're not sick in sin. You're, you're dead in sin. You don't need to just a sponge that kind of cleans you up a little bit or a Q-tip to to clean you up a little bit. No, you need open heart surgery (laughs) that the Holy Spirit can use the word to do. We want the rest, the comfort, the peace, and the more rest of Hebrews 4. But we don't want the the cutting open and the (laughs) cutting to the heart of the matter that we see here in Hebrews 4. Because it exposes what we'd rather cover up, what we'd rather repress. Secret desires, selfish ambition, whatever it may be. And this can be painful. (laughs) There's few other words to describe it. But, of course, Charles Spurgeon made a run at it because he's Charles Spurgeon. And he says of the Bible that the Bible has wrestled with me. It has smitten me. Greg, there's that word. We just talked about that before service. It has smitten me. It has comforted me. It has smiled upon me. It has frowned at me. It has warned me. It weeps with me. It sings to me. It whispers to me. It rebukes me. It reproves me. Reproves me. It is the living word of God. You know, those that think that the Bible isn't living and active, or God is hidden and doesn't want to be found and is elusive, those are people that can't find their Bible. Right? Look, don't just pick up your Bible, though, and read it, look down on it, or critically assess it. Right? The Bible should speak to us, read us. And do work in us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit who Jesus said will guide us in all truth for our good, doing work in our hearts. So this letter to the church in Pergamum, as it's, it's winding up in verse 16, he, he doesn't leave us with the question, okay, how? 
Like, where's, how do I sign up for this heart surgery? How do I sign up for this radical life change? Jesus says here in verse 16, repent, which means radical life change, 180. It says, repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Doubling down on this imagery of the sword of the spirit and God's word. How do we wage war with our sin? How do we fight our failings? That's a multifaceted question, but one of the answers is God's word. Undoubtedly, the Bible. Where do we find saving faith? According to Paul's letter to the Romans, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And the weapon to fight the slow drift of compromise in our lives that we can sometimes drift into is the word of God. You want to walk in truth? Apply the word of God. Feel dry, feel drifting, come back to the word of God. Not just in a transaction, but for relationship. Not as a consumer, but as a son or daughter. Guided by the Holy Spirit. The cure for what ails us is found in God's word and responding in relationship. The cure for what ails the church is going to be found in the word of God. And it's why he tells these churches, again, all of them reading this, they're basically reading each other's mail. So all seven of these churches heard him say, anyone with ears to hear must listen. He's saying the same thing to us tonight. And again, as we talked about with the church in Ephesus, this this word hear that Jesus uses again and again in his ministry, and then he's using it still, his resurrected Jesus. He's saying, hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We talked about this word in the Greek is akuo, akuo. And built into this word for hear is an expected response. There's not a second word following it with then you respond. No, it's hear and heed. <laughs> it's, it's receive and respond. It's both sides of this double-edged sword, God's word. But, you know, speaking of pet phrases, you know what question uh, Jesus says again and again in the Gospels? Didn't get a chance to fact check them. Somebody said this was the most uh, asked question by Jesus in the Gospels is, have you never read? Have you not read fill in the blank? Have you not read this truth over here? You know, if Jesus walked through the, the church in America, just through every pew and every seat and was like, have you not read? whole lot of people will be saying, I haven't. Unfortunately, I haven't. You know, the word of God is not living and active, but it's dead and dusty. And we don't just need to pick up the Bible. We need to hear it and heed it. Akuo, God's word. What does this mean for us as we leave this place, go home, wake up tomorrow? First and foremost, read with the expectation that there's going to be application. Because to hear, to akuo God's word, there's a built-in response. There's a built-in expectation that there's going to be some step to take. So read prayerfully, read thoughtfully, read carefully, but don't get so caught up in chasing something that's obscure that you miss the obvious. The obvious is one, God wants relationship with you. He's given this so we can walk in relationship. But secondly, for all God's mystery and for all the things we may read in here that are unknown, there's also clarity that's relevant to the way we live today, the way we live tomorrow, the way we live the rest of our lives. But if I could have the worship team come up. Again, we, we, in every letter we see like the image of Jesus, the correction, the, the, the step of repentance, how to get right. And in every letter, at the end, there's, there's, there's a promise, an eschatological promise that, that looks to eternity, that looks to what's going to happen when you die. And here in, in, in this letter to Pergamon, there's actually three. Again, there's this this white stone, which speaks to an acquittal. 
Right, again, you look at the good news. Uh, apparently, in, in courts back then, there was a dark stone and a white stone. They give you a white stone if you were acquitted. We're acquitted through the blood of Jesus Christ, what we celebrated at communion. You could also, sometimes there would be a, a party or a public event, maybe a sporting event, and they would give you a stone. It was like your ticket. It was your price of admission. That's how we get into heaven. Not by our works, but by what Jesus Christ did at the cross, which we celebrated tonight through communion. And again, this name that only God knows, you see throughout Scripture, Abram becomes Abraham, right? You got all these different name changes that mark you're being made a new creation in Jesus Christ. It's a name that only us and God know. It's intimate. God is infinite. He's almighty, but he wants to be intimate with each one of us. But then also, I just want to mention the manna. Again, it talks about manna, which is is a, a picture in the Word of God of the Word of God, our daily bread. And it's also a type of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. It's both and, two sides of the same coin, again. The Bible isn't just daily self-help for us to critically apply. The Bible's about Jesus. At the center of every text in the Bible is either preparation for Jesus, a presentation of Jesus, or how we participate with Jesus. All of the Bible is about Jesus. It's about God. So yes, read with the expectation of, of application, but every time you open this book, ask God to reveal himself. Augustine is the one who said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. In, in, in 1 Samuel 3.21, it says that God revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Pray that when you open your Bible. God, speak to me through your word. Reveal yourself through your word. Again, I've been reading through Numbers. And in Numbers, manna is one of the ways that God provides for Israel before they get to the promised land. It's how they were fed. And it says that as soon as they set foot in the promised land, it stopped coming. In the same way, we're on this side of heaven. And this is one of the ways that we're fed daily. But you see, when God provided uh, manna, it wasn't like boxed and Amazon primed to each Israelite, to their, their tent step, doorstep to their tent, whatever you call it. No, they had to go out and collect it for themselves as individuals. They had to go out, get enough manna for their household outside of the Sabbath. Outside of the Sabbath, every day, they had to go out and get the manna for themselves. And each individual, whether we're talking about in Pergamum or here and now, we're dependent on God's word for sustenance, for survival, and we're each responsible for our individual supply. You know, Jesus said in John 5, 39, here I am standing right before you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. If our Bibles could open up and talk to us, this living and active revelation of Jesus, it would so often, no doubt, echo the same words. You aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Again, in the same way, if Jesus asked the American church, have you not read the course and reply, unfortunately, would be a no. Verses without the content and context of Scripture, bits and pieces and parcels of truth can't become our daily bread or we'll step into Pergamum's shoes and walk into half-truths that hurt us, misconceptions that, that derail us, screwy doctrine, and we can open the door to the enemy because he still uses the same weapons, half-truths. And our defense should be the same as Jesus in the desert. Oh, here's the, here's the full truth. Here's the greater context of Scripture. Maybe you, maybe the enemy's been coming to you like, man, you just keep screwing up. <laughs> you want to do what's right, sure, keep screwing up. You don't want to do that, sure, you just keep doing it. Romans 7, right? We're, we're wretched, right? We're, we're at war. But then what do you do? Say, keep reading. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Keep reading. 
Nothing can separate us from his love. We are more than conquerors through him who saved us. Right? The, the enemy may come to us with half-truths. We, we tell him the rest. We tell him the full truth of God's word. And if we could stand, we're going to go into Waymaker, the song we sang earlier. But, man, if angst and shame right, has kept you from Jesus, you've never come to receive grace and mercy to know him as king and savior because you, the enemy just keeps feeding you. Man, you just keep screwing up. You got to get your life right before you come. It's a lie. No, Jesus came and says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, he died for us. One of the beautiful parts of the gospel and the good news. Yeah, you were dead in your sin. But guess what? He died so you could have life. So if you've never stepped into that life, man, we'd love to pray for you tonight. But if you need prayer for anything, you might be Brian Reekin tonight. I just preached on all this stuff on God's word, and you're struggling with something else over here. <laughs> It's been on your mind all night or, or, or anything you need prayer for at all. Dean and Susan are right here. They would love to pray for you. Steph and I are here. We would love to pray for you. But we're going to praise Jesus tonight stepping out of here for what we celebrated at communion. And because God, is, he may be infinite. He may have spoken. He didn't just speak this word into existence. He spoke the universe into existence. And yet he wants to speak to us tonight. And God, we praise you for that, that you sent Jesus to open the door to your grace and mercy. So we don't have to walk in guilt and shame. We don't have to walk with the way. You say, come, you who are weak and weary, heavy burdened, lay that down. Pick up grace and mercy again. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So if you're carrying anything at all tonight, again, it may be something all the way over here that I didn't even touch on. We'd love to pray for you. But let's worship together Jesus Christ.